0: Good evening and welcome to the Centre for Independent Studies. My name's Tom Switzer, I'm the Executive Director of CIS. Uh, For those of you who don't know much about CIS, we're a a leading research public policy organisation. We've been based in Sydney for more than 40 years. Uh, We're primarily committed to the cause of classical liberalism, so we propose uh, free market solutions uh, as a way of making Australia uh, a better and freer place. Uh, We've also over the years delved into international relations and uh, for the best part of 10 years we focused quite a bit on China and that's completely understandable given that China is our largest trade partner. But India matters too. Uh, It's increasingly seizing the Australian imagination and for good reasons. If you look at those free market reforms that were put in place in India in the early 1990s, They've paid great dividends. Poverty has been coming down dramatically and growth rates are now skyrocketing. The last quarter, we had 7.4% annual growth in India. China had 6.5%. Now to the extent that India's economy continues to expand, some economists think it will surpass China in annual growth and as a result, it will continue to reduce poverty. It's rapid development means there's a huge hunger for Australian resources and uranium, and you all know about the controversy dealing with the Adani in Queensland. And the rise of China increases the strategic appeal of a well-armed and increasingly prosperous China as Fareed Zakaria, you just heard there from CNN make clear. Meanwhile, India's Prime Minister, Narendra Modi, he is still dominant in Delhi. He came to power, as you know, in a landslide in May 2014 For the first time since India's independence in 1947, the BJP party gained a clear majority. So what did that political earthquake mean for India and its place in the world? Modi's economic reform agenda. What does Modi mean for Australia and the world generally? Well, I can't think of a better Western expert to talk about India than our next guest today. Sudan Ndume is a resident fellow at the American Enterprise Institute in Washington DC. He's also the South Asia columnist for the Wall Street Journal editorial page for mine, the best paper in the world, and he's the author of My Friend the Fanatic: Travels with a Radical Islamist. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome Sudan Ndume.
1: Thanks very much for that kind introduction, Tom. Uh, I have never been to CIS before, but uh, reading about it and listening to your description, I feel right at home as someone who works at the American Enterprise Institute and writes for the Wall Street Journal editorial page, very, we very much share the same set of values and believe that free markets and free people uh, make this world a better place. Now, I have limited time, and the question is very broad. Uh, is Modi a transformative figure? And the obvious sort of response to that is, in what way? Uh, Is he a transformative figure in electoral politics? Is he a transformative figure in the ruling Bharatiya Janata Party? Is he a transformative figure in terms of Indian foreign policy? Is he a transformative figure in terms of India's experiment with secularism and pluralism? And I could give you a different answer to each of these questions, but I'm not going to answer any of those four questions here in my remarks. So we may be able to get into them in q a simply because my time is limited. And instead, I'm going to focus on a question of which I've paid very close attention to over the years, which is, is Modi a transformative figure for the Indian economy? And to my mind, in the end, all the other answers, or most of the other answers, flow to a large degree from the answer to this question my thesis and i'll lay it out here and explain more in detail as we go along is that when it comes to asia's third largest economy narendra modi so far has not shown evidence of being a transformative figure to a large extent he has mirrored the same collectivist socialist thinking that has uh, marked indian politics and indian economic policy and when you compare the economic policies that have been put, put in place in India with the high-performing economies of Northeast Asia. I think that those of us who had expected his election in 2014 to produce compelling structural reform uh, have been proven, at least so far, to have been over optimistic. So I'm going to divide my talk very quickly into four parts. The first is why did many of us believe that Modi would be a transformative figure for the economy? The second is, how has he not been transformative? What are the major things that have not been done? The third is, what did we get wrong in our analysis? And fourth, very briefly, what are the implications for India and the world that flow from this? So the first part, why did many of us, including me, believe that Modi would be A transformative figure for the Indian economy. Well, for starters, he campaigned in 2013 and 2014. Uh, Really, his his election campaign was focused on development and many of the slogans that he rolled out during that election campaign uh, kind of allowed us to conjure up the image of a committed market-friendly reformer. For instance, he, had, uh, he went on the campaign trail and said that he believed in maximum governance and minimum government. He promised to replace re- the red tape of government with a red carpet for business. He stated that the government has no business doing business. And all these, of course, for those of us who believe in free markets and believe in a market-oriented economy, conjured up exactly the right image. Secondly, there was the Gujarat model. Uh, Narendra Modi was the Chief Minister of Gujarat from 2000 and, uh, the end of 2001 to 2014. And I think in fairness, he did a very good job as Chief Minister. He was proactive in, uh, in attracting foreign direct investment. Gujarat enjoyed nearly double-digit growth rates for over a decade. Uh, its agricultural economy grew very rapidly and over his time in Gujarat he had he acquired a reputation for being India's most business-friendly chief minister and also an efficient administrator and I think this was entirely well-deserved. He'd also developed the reputation for taking politically tough but economically sensible decisions for example famously in Gujarat he campaigned in one of his state elections where he refused to promise free electricity to farmers even though that's what the opposition was promising and he said no he was not going to do that That he was going to that farmers would have to pay for their electricity but he would provide them reliable el- electricity uh, which was sort of seen as an act of and was in fact an act of political courage. There was also a sense that in terms of his own idea uh, in terms of his own thinking that in many ways he had outgrown the economic thinking of the hindu nationalist group the rss the rashtriya swayamsevak Sangh, of, of which he is a, prod, a product so for example in in 2013 he gave a famous speech in delhi at a, at a at a college of economics and commerce where he bemoaned the decline of india's textile manufacturing over the years he spoke of the the success of countries such as south korea and taiwan he said that he dreamed of an India which would be where, where companies would be marked by skill, speed and scale. And all this, for those of you who have followed India and Indian politics carefully, came as quite a sharp and refreshing departure from the usual rhetoric that we had heard from Indian politicians over the decades. He had also surrounded himself with pro-market reformers. Uh, arun shori for instance was the minister in the who, in the late 1990s and early 2000s who had led india's drive to privatize loss making uh, public sector firms state owned firms and the great trade economist Jagdish bhagwati at columbia university who had critiqued india's socialist turn as early as the 1960s and the state and, and, and state, uh, state state planning was also one of his supporters so he had the right sort of people around him too Fast forward to 2018. Now it's not my case. I don't want to overstate my case. It's not my case that the government has done nothing. It has done some good things. Uh, it's true that the GDP growth rate is over seven percent, which is you know reasonable, though we must admit, you know though it's it's coming off a very very low base. So the comparisons with China are not exactly are, are not entirely fair because at the same level of per capita income. China was clocking double-digit growth rates regularly. Nonetheless, 7%, about 7% is a, is, a, is a reasonable growth rate, which is what we're expected at in the coming year. He has been very successful in foreign direct investment. Uh, in 2016, India attracted $60 billion of FDI, which is the highest ever. He has pushed through at least one important structural reform, which is the goods and services tax. Um, it is not a Perfect goods and services tax, it is very complicated both in terms of its structure and in terms of, of, of how one has to file. Nonetheless, I think it is, a, it is an important reform and that over the years, if it is simplified, it would, sort of, it would be of tremendous benefit to the economy. He's put in place a bankruptcy law, which, is, which, which was long overdue. And more recently, the government appears to be, have moved towards breaking a 50-year state monopoly on coal. So I'm not saying that the government has done nothing. Nonetheless, if you look at the economic debate uh, in India for the last 25 years, since the advent of economic reforms in 1991, uh, there have been several important uh, reforms that have been on the agenda, which uh, the previous government, the Congress-led government, had not been able to make headway on for 10 long years between 2004 and 2014. There was a hope that the BJP government under Modi, with his large majority, the first single-party majority in 30 years, would have been able to make headway on. And in fact, he has not made headway. So let me give you a quick quick rundown of those. Uh, the most important, I'd say, is labor laws. Uh, it's a state subject, but the BJP, is, uh, but the, but the, but the, but, the, but the center really can 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 set the tone in terms of these laws. And these again go back to. Uh, Nehru and Indira Gandhi in the in the, uh, in the dec- early decades after independence, which effectively made you know these were laws that were put in place ostensibly to to help workers, but effectively made India one of the uh, hardest places, for example, to open and uh, to to uh, to have large-scale manufacturing. And I'll give you just one statistic here. Farid Zakaria and others, and Tom spoke about China. In China, 90% of textile firms employ 100 workers or more. In India, 90% of textile firms employ 10 workers or less. And that contrast, that single figure will tell you, in a nutshell, what has been wrong with labor laws. Uh, the labor laws, of course, have not been fixed. It doesn't seem like there's any, any signs or any, any movement, any significant movement in that direction. On land, the Columbia University economist had criticized a land bill which had been put in place by the previous government, and he had said that that bill had made it harder to acquire land for industry in India than it was to acquire land on Mars. To the Modi government's credit, they tried. They tried to push reforms here early on in 2015, but uh, they faced political opposition. They quickly backed out and we have seen no real talk of fixing those problematic land laws in more than three years. In privatization, the Prime Minister said that the the government has no business doing business. Right now, the number of privatizations we've seen in nearly four years is exactly zero. Uh, There is some talk of privatizing Air India. If that happens, it would be a great thing. Uh, But so far, we have not privatized even one loss-making firm. Banking, 70% of India's banking sector remains state-owned. There have been some sort of cosmetic moves here and there to tighten up management. No structural reform, no real move to change the nature of the banking system, which is one of the most efficient, and we're finding with a a recent scam involving a diamond trader, uh, also extremely corrupt. In terms of tariffs and trade, after 25 years of liberalization, we have begun to see india move in the other direction Uh, a bunch of tariffs were increased in december and then in the most recent budget in february again it was marked by an increase in, in in import tariffs so we're seeing for the first time and it's too early to comment on this definitively but we are seeing potentially for the first time since the advent of economic reforms in 1991 a trend line in terms of tariffs that is moving away from greater li- from lowering tariffs and greater liberalization to putting up protective barriers again. So all of these are sort of, uh, nor has the Modi government successfully reversed some of the worst decisions of the previous government. For instance, the previous government in 2012 had put in place something called the retroactive tax, which basically allowed authorities to kind of go back decades and slap taxes on, 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 on firms. Uh, this was universally criticized by economists and technocrats. Uh, the Modi government has not done anything to change that. That still remains on the books. Uh, similarly, in taxation, more generally, there was a sense that the previous government had unleashed what the BJP itself criticized as tax terrorism, which was essentially giving tax inspectors way too much power. Um, I would say that tax terrorism has not decreased. If, if anything, it has increased. And then of course we had the decision of 2016, which was a spectacular blunder by the government itself, where it put in place the policy known as demonetization, where essentially overnight they nuked 86% of India's currency by value. Uh, This was touted as an anti-corruption measure. It was certainly electorally popular, but the vast, the overwhelming majority of uh, economists think that it was a terrible idea. And the only people who had suggested this before it actually w- was implemented were an assorted group of, uh, of, 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 of RSS ideologues and yoga gurus. So going back, what did we get wrong, right? So what did I get wrong, right? So in, the, in the, the, the two days before the 2014 election, I wrote a Wall Street Journal column, and the headline was, Indians vote for hope. And the reason was all those reasons why I said why we were optimistic about uh, Modi taking control of the economy. Uh, The first mistake, of course, was that we took the slogans at face value. Uh, In Modi's case, maximum governance, uh, minimum government was not any kind of Thatcherite vision. All it meant was that all decisions are going to be concentrated in the Prime Minister's office. It did not mean that the market would play a a, a much greater role in the Indian, Indian economy we misread the ideolog- ideological evolution of the RSS. Now this is a complex matter, and I know there are internal debates within the, organ- within the organization. But the joke, used, the joke about the RSS, RSS's economic philosophy, the Hindu nationalist organization that, that, that's at the roots of the BJP, the, the joke about their economics used to be that RSS economics is Marxism plus cow. <laughs> now, there was a, there was a, there was a hope that Modi, because he was coming from the industrialized state of Gujarat, had transcended that. And it's certainly true that he has in some ways. For instance, he's very forward-leaning on FDI, and that has been one of his success stories. But I think those of us who felt that that old way of thinking that was embedded in this grassroots organization had been completely overcome, were over-optimistic. It is still a factor in Indian politics. It is still a factor in the decision-making of the government. We also overestimated the role of his advisers. It turned out that some of the more important people, such as Shuri, who had led the privatization drive, were simply not taken into government. And others, who had a reputation for being economic liberals, were taken into government, but we don't see the fingerprints of their ideas very clearly on government policy. Finally, there was a role played by the opposition, and I think this is increasingly important when we kind of chart out India's economic future, uh, which is that the attacks from Modi effectively come from the left. So when he did, for instance, try to uh, liberalize the land acquisition laws, he was immediately attacked by the Congress party with a jibe where he was accused of of representing the people who dress up in suits. And uh, when you have a situation, when you have a political environment, where the attacks only come from the left, sometimes it makes sense to tack to the left, and that's exactly what this government uh, has done. So what does all this mean then? And I'd say that it's an open question. I mean, there is no doubt that if you take a long view, if you take a 40-year view, uh, India has done well. It has grown at over 6% a year for close to 40 years if you take a 25 year, approximately 25 year view, if you go back to economic reforms of 1991, uh, there's no question that India has been one of the bright spots in the world economy and one of the best performing economies. So I want to put this in perspective. But the question really is, can India get to the next level without these economic reforms that we've been talking about for a long time? Labor, land, not banking, privatization of loss making of, of of state owned firms and what gives this a kind of urgency is the fact uh, is india's demographic profile now just to stay in the same place india needs to create 12 million new jobs a year that's a million jobs a month just to stay in the same place uh, it's no secret that it is not it is not creating even a fraction of that number of jobs Uh, If you don't believe me, just have a conversation with any Indian taxi driver in Sydney or Melbourne or Perth and ask them about the situation in their hometown and how easy it is to get a job. And the answer is it's not. And what we've seen over the past few years is protest movements breaking out in parts of India, which are unusual because they are protest movements that are being led by members of traditionally dominant and prosperous castes. So we've had the Jats who've been protesting in Haryana. We've had the Marathas who've been protesting in Maharashtra. We've had the Patels who've been protesting in Gujarat. And these are all dominant groups. And if you thread this together, what is going on is that even groups who have, that have been traditionally prosperous and politically powerful uh, feel that employment opportunities are not being generated. So to me the sort of the you know the the jury is still out on whether India, India is going to catch up with China. But I think that we have to at least start thinking seriously in terms of the Indian political system not being able to deliver the kind of market friendly reforms that many economists think are necessary. So Deng Xiaoping used to joke about, you know, he used to talk about not joke, he's to talk about socialism with Chinese characteristics, which is essentially capitalism. Uh, Unfortunately, socialism with Indian characteristics really is socialism. (laughs) I'll leave it at that.
0: (laughs) 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 Sudanan, thank you very much. Um, Now is as good a time as any to acknowledge a few people here in the audience. Uh, We have with us here this evening uh, from the Indian... Consul General Mr. S.K. Verma. Thank you very much, Mr. Verma. And we also have here Damien Tudorhope, who is the state Liberal MP uh, for Epping. Uh, Epping is in Northwest Sydney. It's home to a pretty significant segment of Indian Australians. Thank you, Damien. And we also have here in the audience Mr. Stephen Loosley, who's a former Labour Senator and President of the ALP. Uh, India is a bipartisan issue and we at the CIS are non-political, so it's great to have a Labor and a Liberal here in the audience. <laughs> now to our panel. We've heard from Sudanand. We're going to talk about what he had to raise with our following guests, Balesh Singh, Manoj Shuruan and Rayul Jesri, And I'm going to moderate it. and um, we heard earlier from Fareed Zakaria from the Washington Post and CNN, arguably India's most prominent Western commentator, apart from yourself. Um, <laughs> he made the point that the central fact of international relations is the rise of China. And what's India's response? And he's perplexed. He's Indian. Uh, he spent the first 20 years of his life in India. He focuses on India a lot. He doesn't know what India's response is. Is it a global power under Modi? or is it primarily focused on domestic affairs?
1: So I don't think this should be viewed in either or terms. I think that there's no question that India aspires to be a bigger power. Uh, The language that has been used in the last few years is that it aspires to be a leading power in the world. And uh, I certainly think that the prime minister's diplomacy has been quite successful in the, to the degree that he has sort of invigorated the foreign policy apparatus he has uh, reached out to global leaders and formed personal bonds uh, you have the you have a very we've had a, you saw a very robust indian response to a chinese intrusion into bhutan last year but so I, I would generally speaking give the government fairly high marks in terms of how it has executed foreign policy but the question that sort of i come back to is that in the end uh, china has emerged as a global power because China, since Deng Xiaoping, has got its economy right, and I am—it's it, not clear
0: to me. So mainly the free market reforms rest. from the early 1990s, correct?
1: Exactly. So right, you know. So Deng Xiaoping famously said that you know, a, 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 it doesn't matter whether a cat is black or white as long as it catches mice, right? <laughs> But the, the philosophy behind an act like demonetization is that I really do care about the color, or not only of the cat, but also of the mouse and what kind of. So I think India, and it's a fascinating thing that in, in, in some ways the, the Chinese, who are the, you know, the, the heirs to the, to the thinking of Lenin and Mao, have been able to pivot and embrace the market much more successfully. Uh, than India, even though India does have a sort of tradition going back to British days of much more you know, familiarity with market-based institutions, for instance, mm-hmm. and so my concern is that if the economy, if the politics of India does not produce the reforms that are necessary, then no matter how well you try to execute your foreign policy, you're simply not going to have the diplomatic and military resources to compete with a behemoth like okay, China. Well, let's
0: turn to domestic politics. Um, some commentators, Raul uh, will lump uh, Modi with Trump and Brexit to demonstrate evidence that uh, this is a guy who's a classic populist who's just tapping into widespread anxieties felt across middle India. Let's get your reaction to something that Salman Rushdie told Fareed Zakaria on CNN a few months ago, quote, if you don't have a firm grip on the truth, then you lay yourself open to a phenomena like Trump like Modi in India, like Brexit. There's a whole range of these phenomena, which I think all come from the same damaged reality that we're living in. Uh,
2: look, uh, uh, Salman Rushdie is, uh, can have his opinion about... What he thinks about
0: uh, Modi or
2: Trump and, uh, for that matter, anybody else. And the fact of the matter is, Modi has caught the imagination of India. And the reason for that is his proven record of 12 years of governance in Gujarat. Not only that, the aspiring India at this point of time, where the total population, uh, 70% of the total population is in the age group of 15 to 35, that has a lot of hope. But the unfortunate part which has happened in India is for the last 60 odd years, the politics, the institutions which have been built by the Congress party, they have been so hard to demolish to get any reform through. What Sadanand was saying about that land acquisition bill, because Modi had the uh, majority in the lower house, which he can get through, but as soon as you move to the Senate, what you call here, and the upper house in India, they get blocked. In 2014, BJP was ruling only in five states. Right now, BJP, after Sunday's uh, election results coming out, they are ruling out of 28 states in 21 states. So after 2019, all those issues which are basically pro-market friendly, and all the reforms which have been held back because they all get blocked at the Senate level, where you have to do deals and uh, try to push them through in a different way, they will all be a thing of the past. Just to the government's credit, what they've done, you can talk about globalization and India's role in the world but unless and until you are domestically strong it is not going to happen so what modi did when he came to power in the last 4 years they have opened 320 million bank accounts mm-hmm. for the poor of the people so right now the subsidy straight away goes to a poor pe- poor person's bank account apart from that the demonetization which people say that has been a failure and in fact if you look at All that money, which was the black money, has entirely come into the banking sector. Now the government can actually look for who has had the money. And now they can just go after the people, looking at how they have acquired that money. The new rule, which is coming about non-declared property, because a lot of the real everywhere in the world, a lot of money, which is laundered, always get uh, laundered in real estate, most of the time. So the new law which is coming about, clearing all that uh, in just terms of on non-declared property, that is coming to get in force now. We understand being pro-market uh, and being supporter of BJP right from day one, we understand it's been a tough road. And the unfortunate part which has been is, when politics is played at every single point, for no irrespective of which country you come from, That is what stalls the growth of the country. About China, China started its journey in 1980. India started a bit later. And then there were all these corruption issues, all this money siphoned, and the constant threat of terrorism, which actually takes India back every time, where a lot of companies, they were feeling that they can't invest money in India. In Mumbai, we had attacks. We had attacks everywhere. So those things has basically stopped a lot of stuff. But right now, the silver lining is, BJP has come to power in 21 states out of 28. Next time when the Senate elections are going to happen, they will have maturity. 2019, Modi is definitely going to come back, and that will basically kickstart the whole thing. And sorry, last point about the budget this year, which people are saying is protectionist. Everywhere in the world, all the leaders are basically going for protection now. What happened in uh, America? Trump has put a stop on immigrants. What's happening up here? Labor parties against Adani. They're trying to do something up here. So everywhere in the world, all the leaders, Brexit happened. So these are the issues. Being election year for Modi, he had to make sure that he comes back in power, take everybody along. And next time when they come back, they will have much better maturity to do the right thing.
0: Uh, Monaj, let me bring you in here because the conventional wisdom, uh, I think, is a bit like uh, Rahul. There, that the um, we all know that the the Gandhi nauru dynasty was front and centre of Indian politics for decades, possibly going back a century. Uh, Rahul Gandhi, the current opposition leader of the the Left of Centre uh, Congress Party, a son, grandson, great grandson of prime ministers. Uh, he's on the political back foot, and there is this sen- consensus that the BJP is on the cusp of wiping out the Congress Party. Your response? Yeah,
3: I don't think so. This is correct, because uh, uh, Gandhi, definitely, they were in power for many years, but that's all because of India as a democratic country. People voted for them. People liked them, and they did a lot of, lot of revolution. I mean, if I go back to when India was free, that was in 1947, we were one of the poorest countries. Uh, and our life expectancy, if I talk about health, that was about what forty years, thirty-five, forty years. That was, and we were actually importers of all the food grains. We were, and we were sort of getting a lot of international aid. So now look at now, after two, until two thousand fourteen or two thousand seventeen or eighteen, if you talk, our economy is the the sixth largest economy in terms of GDP. So that's a that's a transformation. That's what people voted for. So Gandhi dynasty, yes, they were in power because. They did that. They made uh, co- India a modern country. And they did a lot of these transformations. That's why people keep voting them. And people, and we, the people keep voting them. And the other thing is, people rejected the opposition parties
0: every time. i sure critics might say that uh, so India was in a pretty bad economic way in 2014. That's why there was a resounding support for BJP.
3: That's a lot of, uh, is that for me or? No, I, for you. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, he, he was about to talk, so. So I think if you look at 2014 election, Saddam has already sort of mentioned a lot that uh, people voted for a sort of a hope. A lot of false falsehood was spread in in throughout all the campaign. I mean that that was uh, that was the highlight, and the whole campaign was sort of run by a lot of crony capitalism companies. So a lot of lies were spread, and that's why I'd probably Congress couldn't really sort of resist that. So probably we, we lost the election. I mean, that's that's uh, a fact. Uh, and where is the hope? I mean, where is the transformation? Are We're talking about this topic today. It's I think it's uh, – I'm not even convinced. So, I mean, we're talking about uh, transformation, whether Modi is a transformation leader. We're talking about that. So we should have talked that when he was – he became a prime minister four years back. Now we all know the fact where is the transformation and sadanand has already sort of mentioned a lot of points where is the transformation so there is no real point of talking on this topic i think mm. the transformation should I have talked six months okay well let me, Belish,
0: the, let me bring Belish let me bring in here so and ask the question are, yeah. Yeah. yeah let me ask bellish the question i mean uh, Gandhi and Nauru are giants of indian politics but do you think that dynastic politics or dynastic politics is a thing of the past
4: well uh, to be honest the way manoj explained people voted for Congress. Uh, in past so, so many six uh, decades, but uh, the way, and he rightly said that uh, India is a democratic country, but the way I see it, and uh, most Indians see it, is it is kind of a dictatorial concentration of power on top of a d- democratic country. Why I say this is because if you see the way uh, din- this dynasty, Nehru dynasty or Gandhi dynasty has been controlling the whole power within Congress, has been quite di- dictatorial. Uh, Generation after generation after Nehru after uh, well let me complete Nehru and then uh, Indra Gandhi and then Rajiv Gandhi and then uh, Sonia Gandhi and then Rahul, Ga- Rahul Gandhi now in recent elections there was there were no transparent elections and uh, Rahul Gandhi was put on uh, this uh, poison without any transparency without any uh, elections now if you talk about democracy if you talk about participation then th- it has to be reflected in the party itself now. Yes, India is a democratic country, and it has been electing Congress for last few decades because of very uh, able opposition. But last few uh, decades, if you see, the steady growth uh, growth of BJP, and now if you can say from 2014 to 2018, BJP has grown from seven states to 20 states, and Congress has declined from 13 states to three states. What does it reflect? Indians are sick and tired of this dynasty politics. Indians are sick and tired of continuous hope, false hope, that uh, Nehru gave, gave this uh, slogan, Garibi Hatao," which translates, uh, remove poverty. Then uh, his, his daughter, Indra Gandhi, she also gave the same slogan. Rajiv Gandhi gave the same slogan. And now, fourth generations, fourth generation, they are giving same slogans, that Garibi Hatao" means remove poverty. But the thing is, Congress relies on, uh, on India being poor.
0: So, so, so then, in, just quickly, just so the Indians then are a bit like the Americans. They're sick and tired of dynastic politics. So no more Bush, no more Clinton, no more Gandhi, no more no, No more, no, 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 no no more, no more corruption. Sh- response to no, all that. No, no, more corruption, okay. which was, no. Which,
4: no more corruption, which was um, product of uh, Congress. Yeah. Let
0: me tell my friend Balesh that in this
3: government, Modi's <laughs> this government, out of let's say 100 cabinet ministers, 30% 30 p- 30 of them are dynasty background. This is a fact. Okay. This is not my estimate. Let me let me let me tell. Now that is thirty percent is the has a dynastic background, or they are pursuing this dynasty politics. So that is thirty percent. So they don't they, they can't actually talk about that. No, no I can now, explain. Let, the, let, the no, let, let me let me finish. I am not finished yet. Sorry. So that is that is, that is more these cabinet ministry. This is a fact. This is all in public domain. You can research okay. it. Let me let me finish it.
5: Let now apart from
3: that. There are few chief ministers of BJP government who has got a dynastic background. Vasundhara Raja is absolutely dynastic. She, her, her son is a dynast, His son is a, uh, in politics. Brother, sister, everybody is in politics. If you talk about Raman Singh, who is another chief minister of one of the BJP gov- government, he got a dynastic background. His son is MLA or MP or something. Now we talk about uh, any of them. There are a lot of other examples. You know, I won't really. Elaborated, but there are a lot of examples. So where is the dynasty? What are what are they really talking about? I can't understand okay. that. Okay. How can well, well, you talk? To and the other thing is, yep. Congress is a democratic party. There is an election happens for president of Congress. That so election well, happened, Anybody can contest. So, so Raul anybody, Gandhi, Rahul Gandhi was elected by election. Yes, the, that, that's definitely product. You go and go and check election commission website. <laughs> there is a process. Okay, anybody, I anybody can the election. A quick response. So to there the the is a democratic, there is a democratic setup. Yes, leaders of Congress like Dinesh. The leader of Congress <laughs> like like Gandhi family. Thanks for that. Thank no, like, you. Yeah. Leader of Congress whoever they vote that that's all okay. done, Can, done. So there is yes, there is no real very quickly, sort of uh, discussion
4: very on that how modi is clearing up dynasty is this and what do what do we mean by dynasty dynasty means a uh, son or daughter whosoever, when he is or she is imposed on people without their ma- mandate just because he is he's part of that you know, that family that is dynasty now uh, I'll give you one example of how bureaucracy and how the whole governance is being run by Modi is every OSD. OSD is kind of a very uh, a, p- a person who actually runs uh, whole ministry behind the minister. Modi has placed a rule from the day one when he you know, assumed office that no relative, no close uh, associate or friend can be OSD of any minister, including the ex, ex- party president Rajnath Singh. Modi himself rejected number of OSD requests from uh, all BJP BJP minister. So much so, forget about dynasty of like being imposing any minister or being imposing any any uh, senior official. He is not even allowing OSD of any minister. So that because that was the root cause of corruption, and that is the reason why, as uh, Mr. Dhume has explained, where's the reform? It's more than 75% and the uh, uh, head of the World Bank noticed this, more than 75% corruption has dropped in, in top level of governance. And these are the reforms and this is the reason why uh, outcome of when you clear uh, dynasty policy now politics.
0: Sudan and, and let's turn to uh, Modi himself. In January, as we heard earlier, he was in Davos and he championed globalization and warned about the power of protectionism. But as you've pointed out here this evening, in his most recent budget a few weeks ago. Um, this was a soap-the-rich protectionist strongman of the sort familiar in many poor countries. Um, how do you account for the two Modi's, but also why hasn't he used this huge mandate that he won in 2014 to put in place the kind of free market reforms many people had anticipated?
1: Yeah, thanks, that's a terrific question. I'm gonna quickly jump in and and disagree with both of them on the dynasty point first.
0: <laughs>
1: you know, see, the, the, the crucial difference is this. And in the Congress party, the top job is reserved for a member of the family. In the BJP, that is not so. So in that sense, the BJP is, has, is, uh, is, is more uh, evolved in terms of this. But it's certainly true, as, as Manoj pointed out, that once you get below the top, uh, this is India, uh, there, there are many, many, many BJP mini political dynasties. Also, so no party in India is free of this curse. I'm sorry to say. Uh, so now coming back to this we question of the Modi
4: rather than m- m- more so BJP.
1: So, and that's so now, so, so to, to, to come to the question of the two Modi's, you know, this is something that I've written about for years in the Wall Street Journal, which is that you know, I've always said that ne- you should not pay attention to what the guy what and. An, an Indian politician or technocrat says when he puts on a suit and goes to Davos. <laughs> and I've learned this the hard way. You, you should pay attention to what that same politician says when he is wearing a kurta pajama and speaking in Hindi in the backwaters of Uttar Pradesh. If you want to understand what economic, and that is, that is, that is a good thing. That's not a bad thing, because in the end, it's a democracy. And in the end, what a politician says to their voters Matters a lot more than what a politician says to a bunch of Westerners in suits, and that really explains the two Modi's in Davos. So in Davos he gave this speech, and if you sort of looked at his speech, it was, you know, it was almost like a, a it was an echo, Xi Jinping speech last year at Davos. It was sort of that that uh, you know we're, we're at a moment where globalization is under threat, Trump making these anti-globalization noises, and India is going to step up because obviously globalization has been tremendously good for India in terms of helping it reduce poverty. But then you have the budget which sends the, exactly the opposite message. And the truth is that, very you know, simply put, um, the votes in India are, going to be, are not going to be won based on what you say in Davos, the votes are going to be won based on, on, on another set of policies. And so I think that, that to me that's a very sort of you know, simple explanation.
0: Okay, so Modi's copping criticism here for not fulfilling his free market reform pledges. But what about on the social front, Rahul? Um, Modi's critics will often argue uh, that Modi himself is personally responsible for the the, 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 the growing anti-Christian and, and, and anti-Muslim attitudes around India. Um, what's your response to that?
2: Um, okay, uh, that's a very, very interesting question, and I'm very happy to take that on. Uh, the thing is... Uh, there was, uh, there was a riot in India in 2002 and uh, Prime Minister, uh, at that time he was a Premier of the state. And uh, there was a lot of uh, media which actually just came out against him saying that uh, as a Premier of the state he did not do enough. Uh, to basically stop the riots or do something else. In that one, the official figures are around 1,000 uh, people died, out of which around 700 were Muslims, around 300 Hindus. So, so that was the line which was taken. So that thing, after 2002 and 2004, Congress party came to power. For the 10 years they pursued him with every single inquiry which they could put up. Even an SIT, which is a Supreme Court constituted uh, body, which grilled Modi as a premier of a state for at least 36 hours and still could not find any evidence of his involvement into that. Moreover, on top of that, after after 2002, there was not even a single riot till date in 16 years which ever happened in Gujarat, the state he represented. Now, just to give you an idea, in the same state, in the Congress ruled 60 odd years, there were riots which were much more bigger and in which thousands and thousands of people died. In 1984, the, the biggest tragedy for the Sikhs in India, when Indira Gandhi was assassinated, and there were 3,006 which were basically literally burnt in New Delhi by putting tires in their neck, burning tires. And my dear friend Manoj Shiran would definitely remember that, that Rajiv Gandhi at that time made a statement, Indira Gandhi's son, who was made the Prime Minister, that when big tree falls, earth shakes, okay. Now, just to tell you about the, now coming back to the question of Modi being seen as anti-Christian or anti-Muslim. Now, Modi government started and the reason they came to power in Uttar Pradesh was banning the triple talaq, which was the triple divorce, by saying three times divorce. The Muslim men in India would be able to basically divorce their wife by just uttering thrice so modi government brought a legislation and uttar pradesh that up in which the muslim population is almost 25% they won out of 3 uh, 400 seats they won more than 320 seats because the entire muslim population the women they voted for modi okay because they know that they have been Misu- this uh, decree has been misused against them a lot. Okay, I have to just uh, just, just, just one second, I'll can't, I'll, 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 I'll let, let me finish, let me finish, let me finish guys, let me finish guys. What has happened in <laughs> India over the last 70 odd years, the leftist mindset and the vote bank politics of appeasing the minorities to make their uh, vote share, w- that is what exactly happens in Australia too, unfortunately. Where a section of society or a section of party basically tries to appease a particular section of voters so that they actually stay with them forever. Okay? Just by slogans, but not doing the right thing. Modi has stopped that. Every single accusation which has been thrown in the last four years about demolishing uh, mosques or uh, uh, trying to dec- uh, desecrate the churches or some rape which happened with the a rape accusation which was done in uh, Calcutta with a nun, and what they have found is all those guys were either the leftist or the CPI, the Communist Party of India guys. So that has been proven in record. It's all in the newspapers. do my
0: okay.
1: Yeah, I mean, I've, listen, we're all entitled to our own opinions. We're not entitled to our own facts, and there is absolutely zero evidence to suggest that muslim women uh, voted overwhelmingly for the bjp it's certainly true that the bjp scored a very big victory in uttar pradesh where the muslim population is about 18% not 25% and uh, that's part because there was a consolidation of the hindu vote across costs there's zero evidence that the muslims voted for the bjp that's that's fine you know there are a lot of you know the ethnic groups can choose their i'm not saying that this is necessarily you know, is is sort of uh, reflects poorly on the party. But it's simply untrue to claim that the BJP is hoovering up large numbers of Muslim female votes because that's, there's absolutely no data to support that. So that's my first point. Um, the second point is that, you know, I think that this is uh, a much more uh, complicated and delicate question than, you know, that can be answered by, by taking party positions. Um, the fact is that, I would argue that there has been, uh, you know, Indian secularism is going through a crisis right now. And it's certainly true that in the traditional model of secularism that was followed from the time of Nehru in 1947, uh, there was a tendency to ignore the radicalism that was on the Islamic side. Because there was a sense that the Muslims were a small and vulnerable minority. Also, there was a sense that because clerical authorities in the community had a very large political voice, it was better to stay clear of that. And that has been my long-standing criticism of the Congress and the Nehruvian brand of secularism. But this is not. One, one, one can accept that criticism uh, while also accepting that there are genuine problems uh, in the BJP's approach to these issues. And fundamentally, the problem here is that makes the mistake of not distinguishing between ordinary muslims and islamists the right in india makes the mistake of discriminating against in their rhetoric and in some, some of their policies towards ordinary muslims who have nothing to do with extremism and this is a genuine issue it can't be swept under the carpet and certainly shouldn't be sort of uh, should shouldn't, shouldn't be uh, ev- evaded or brushed over
0: There is so much to say about India. We have to move on just quickly. I want to ask uh, a question to um, to to belish about um, one of the big issues in Australian politics right now is the controversy over this Adani mine. Now, there was an op-ed piece in the uh, Financial Review last week by a chap named Danny Price, Managing Director of Frontier Economics, and he makes the point, and this is more or less the federal government's position and the Modi government's position. It's meeting stiff resistance, especially here in this country. Adani's coal will provide powerful lights clean water and jobs in India. We need sensible climate policy here before lecturing others. What's your sense of this Adani debate and do you sense that this could lead to um, anti-Australian attitudes in India if we reject the bid?
4: Yeah, no, it can very well so actually. The thing is and um, the way it is being seen by Indian community in Australia or for that matter business community in, in India is because uh, not I'm not a spokesperson of Adani as a company uh, itself but of course I would uh, side with anything that is pro-progress for not only Australia but India as well. Now, Adani as a business is good for Australia, and that has been uh, the stand of local people, indigenous people, and of course, both side of politics, Liberal and and, and Labor. Before the Labor, uh, for whatever political reason, it flipped. Now uh, we see the more and more influence from Greens for you know, for their own political gain on the uh, locals, as well as on labor, and that is the reason why they flipped. Uh, Adani, as a business, of course it's a good for local community, of course it's good for India-Australia ties, and of course it is, gonna, you cannot, uh, on, on a developing nation like uh, India, you cannot impose the restrictions of, or, or the burden of uh, 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 bearing climate change and uh, not using coal whereas Australia and other, uh, other developed countries have already uh, enjoyed the fruit of uh, using this energy for the last so many decades and now uh, we should burden, we should bear the burden of uh, using uh, or emitting like controlling carbon emission. I, I don't think that's fair. Coal being the cheapest source of power in Australia and coal being a very feasible uh, source of power in India is very much instrumental for India's growth. But uh, on that point, I would also like to add one more thing on uh, uh, Sadhanan's point that, as he said, secularism in India is in danger right now. It's completely, completely a uh, biased opinion. Uh, Again, as he said, uh, it's his opinion, and he's entitled to (laughs) one. The, the, The problem is this. As he rightly mentioned that Nehruvian secularism was uh, siding towards minorities, especially uh, an Islamic minority, and ignoring their uh, the problems of uh, within Islam and Islamic terrorism, and that has led in the last so many decades that marginalisation of Islamic community within themselves, and that's why there is so much grudge, and that's why, uh, that is one of the signs, is number of states like Gujarat or UP, number of uh, rights small or big, on every year, number of states, number of states. Now BJP and especially in uh, modi's model in gujarat and for that matter in, in uh, nationally is forget about hindu forget about muslim everyone is indian and his slogan most popular and most uh, uh, most uh, effective one is sabka saath sabka vikas he doesn't care whether you are hindu or muslim and that is the reason why Muslims have accepted we him get off, in yep. Gujarat. Okay. and others. No, listen, uh, I was just going to say,
0: that the broadcast section of uh, Indians are obviously Hindu uh, Indians. But there is a population of, I think, 180 million Muslims, or thereabouts. Second it largest. Just, it's the second largest, second largest population world. of Muslims in the world yes. after Indonesia. Fascinating. Manoj.
3: Yes. Now, my friend Balesh and Rahul are trying very hard to justify <laughs> this. They're trying very hard to justify it, but the reality is Mm-hmm. Modi is a product of RSS. Yeah. So what is RSS? RSS has got one ideology. They don't, they don't allow different views to, to work together or different thoughts. That is one school of thought. So how can they, are they trying their best to sort of no, defend them? We don't need to try. <laughs> RSS <laughs> let, They let, only let, got let, one ideology. Now I will let, ask let, them a question. Mm-hmm. Most in UP and in Gujarat, let's say talk about UP. UP got a massive population of Muslim and they did not give any ticket. To, to contest election. Let, let, let me now answer. where is that? So what is? that? <laughs> let, let, let me now let, similarly let me in answer. Gujarat. Similarly, I'll similar thing that. happened in Gujarat. I'll that. I'll they don't that. want.
5: They did not give any.
3: So so. If RSS has got one school of thought and they want to impose that school of thought to, oh, to the whole country. Okay, okay. now yeah. let, me, let me answer that. Let me very this quickly is, answer this that. Is against this. this is yeah. against the Constitution of India. Okay, okay. 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 let me just democratic quickly answer right, that. Right. 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 No, they're trying their very best quickly, to defend India but it's happening.
2: In any democratic process when you are fighting elections you fight elections to win. You don't fight elections because you want to appease some Particular portion of the community to make sure that is what you're doing. Let me just ask a very simple no, question. No, from I no, no, no. Let me let me let me just let those me those just, me those just those tell things. you. Let me just finish first. When BJP came to power in 1999, BJP was the only one who appointed Abdul Kalam Azad as the president of India. Okay, they were the only one. When Congress came to power in 2004, Abdul Kalam Azad was still. Eligible to have another term. Most of the presidents in India, they go for two terms. But Congress Party rejected him. Why? What was that? Number two. What did you? No, do no, no, no. Ansari, look, the vice president. No, so he just retired. No, no, he just retired. No, no, anyway, he just retired. anyway. He just retired. So, so finally, I, I don't agree with you. finally, in here, there are four hundred thousand Indians living in Australia right now. Do you think that Indians would be? should be st- indian australian should stand up now and say because we are 400000 we are minority give us a ticket no when someone is eligible when someone proves their mettle, then only they should be getting a ticket no matter what party they belong to, so that is the okay. argument. That's
0: what now it's time for Q and A, a yeah. and our first, from, uh, <laughs> <laughs> our first question will come from Ardi <laughs> Saxaria. Our first question will come from Ardi Saxaria. Is it Indian politics lively? Yeah. Adi is a uh, an exchange student, uh, Indian exchange student at the Australian National University, and we're delighted to say she was a summer intern here at CIS. Ardi. Um, since you. Uh,
5: Amazing discussion, it was really uh, intriguing, um, the whole debate between all of you. Um, since the, the theme about the ideology of the BJP party came up, I was wondering if the panel could throw some light on, uh, since Modi came into power, there were a lot of uh, instances in India that happened that reflected uh, the party's religious illiberalism uh, when it came to, uh, and also the party is touted to be very, very uh, skeptical of uh, Western values or or accepting uh, any of the Western ideologies. So do you think that at any point, uh, what, what there sort of could be.
4: What sort of incidents you are uh, referring to?
5: Uh, religious intolerance when it came to uh, uh, a lot of the car instances of people, uh, of the whole uh, uh, legislation coming about not eating. Cow or people being lynched because of uh, having a cow or because being rumored to have like you know killing a cow and Modi did not make a lot of uh, very bold uh, statements or like Mm. actions against these things. So do you think at any point the the religious illiberalism of the party could cause a problem between the India and Australia engagement just because of Australia's uh, um, value based uh, inclination?
2: Yeah. Okay, I'll just very quickly answer that. Cow slaughter is banned in India in every single state. It's an Indian constitution. You want to eat beef? Your India is the largest exporter of beef. When we talk of beef, but we're talking of buffaloes and other meat, not the cow. So if somebody has done something since, wrong. Since when?
1: Since,
2: uh, so since 1947, even even before Nehru became the Prime Minister. Now talking of intolerance and talking of Western ideology let me just tell you BJP is the only party right-wing center of right party in India which has joined UDF United Democratic fund which is the which is the all the liberal and sorry all the right center of right parties in the world and that only happened after Modi became the prime minister third point which I want to make about intolerance what it is is what we get here, is most of the time what the media wants you to know. The bad news always (laughs) sell more than the good news, Okay, So what we need to understand, if any of you who hasn't been to India, just please go and check it out, how tolerant the country is. There are more than 1,400 languages spoken in that country. All indigenous religions, which have emanated from India, had never had any right in between them, whether they are Hindus, whether they are Jains, whether they are Sikhs, whether they are Buddhists, okay, and, and even with the Christians. So tolerance is not an issue. It has just been created to malign the BJP government for the simple reason to get people on one side, because of vote bank politics, which has kept the Congress in power for the last 60 odd years, And that was the only reason. But uh, we don't see any religious intolerance.
6: Next question from uh, Professor Bruce McKern, former of Stanford University. Uh, Thank you very much, Tom. Um, I would like to address a a question to the panel, and particularly to our first speaker, Sadhlan, about the future. Uh, You raised at the beginning the question of China's power vis-a-vis India. And I agree with you that in, in order to be able to counter China's power, India has to have a stronger economic base. I have recently read um, a review, but I've not read the book yet, uh, of a book by an Indian woman called Dreamers, and her name, I think, is um, uh, Stigdan Poonan. Uh, And she is very pessimistic about the social impact of the inequality in China, in, in India, over the next few years something of the order of 500 new people, new births, will happen between now and 2050. And so India will have a very large demography and a lot of people are very positive about the demographic dividend. But she speaks rather with great concern about rising senses of inequality and inability to get jobs and inability to have the kind of life that uh, they've been aspiring to. So So my question to you, I think, is, do you believe that there's a significant problem there? And how will the government address it? Will will India move in the direction of a government which is uh, very much like the Chinese government, a single-party government, which appears to be able to get things done? That's, a,
1: that's an absolutely fantastic question. I'm, um, I'm afraid I don't have a good answer, but I'll take a stab at it. You know, the, the demographic question in many ways is a central question because when you look at India in a glass-half-full way, it really is about, to a large extent, the young demography and the fact that, you know, when you look at the py- at a pyramid, India is going to have many more people at a working age and relatively few people who are of a retirement, who, who are past retirement. But the flip side of the demographic dividend is precisely this. For this to work out, you have to find ways to ensure that that, demo- that, 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 that young population is productively employed, which is why the economic um has been so central. To add another wrinkle to this, if you look at India, uh, if you look across the country, the parts of India that are more prosperous, the, the parts of India that are more pros- more prosperous and generally better governed uh along the western and southern coasts are also the places where generally speaking they have reached replacement levels of fertility. And the parts of India that are least well governed and with are the ones that are of the Hindi heartland, for instance, where, the dem- where, the, where, where, where birth rates are not expected to reach replacement levels for another 100 years or, or longer. So I think it's a genuine, uh, it's it's a, it's a central question the country's going to have to grapple with it. I'm not in a position to, to say whether Indian politics is going to evolve in a Chinese direction, um, but I think it's a very good question. And I think that at some point, whoever is in power whether it's Modi or someone else they have to come to grips with this because unless you can get the economy to start delivering jobs you're going to get a situation where you have many young people who are uh, who on television and in movies and so on have aspirations that are much greater than their parents and grandparents i'll give you one quick anic- anecdote before i sort of wrap up this this question you know i was in uh, talking to someone in delhi a couple of weeks ago and he was telling me how horrible his life was and i asked this person about you know how much he had studied he'd studied till fifth grade and, and uh, whether he, he had when he had grown up whether he'd had a television or a refrigerator or a mobile phone and he said he'd had none of these things he had all of them now his he expected his children to go to university and so then i said well how can you possibly say that your life is worse and he says that well you know the aspirations are so much greater and the 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 gap between aspirations and what, what the economy is going to deliver central question, and I would say that this is what all po- politicians and all political parties are dealing
0: with. One more question, yes sir? Thank you.
1: Uh, Pavan Lutra, Indian Link. Uh, Sadhanand,
2: good to see you. You were here about three years ago and at that time uh, when the Modi government had just come into power you had said that the BJP government was uh, a party of
1: opportunity. Uh, do you still think it is the party of opportunity or has it lost its way? Number two, which I wanted to check with you, was that uh, on the foreign policy front, China has been quite aggressive in its international politics. South China Sea, the one belt, one road policy, uh, setting up a naval base in Sri Lanka. Has the Modi government in the past four years been outplayed by China in international affairs? Two very good questions. Uh, I would certainly say from my comments that the the, the BJP has not uh, lived up to my expectations of, being a government of opportunity. And I think it has been—it has not been a true successor to the last BJP government between 1998 and 2004, which really was one of the most reformist governments India had seen. So we've seen the BJP move to the left on economics compared to its own past and not live up to the e- expectations of reform. Uh, you know, Hope springs eternal, and I hope that we are right. and post-2019, something is different. But based on the evidence so far, uh, they have certainly not lived up to expectations. On China, I think the government has actually done a good job. I mean, I think what, what's, what's happening here is that as China becomes more and more aggressive, not just in the South China Sea, but in the Indian Ocean, uh, the fact is that India is being forced to play defense. This is not the fault of any particular Indian government. Uh, this is just simply a reality that China has become more influential today in Sri Lanka than it was earlier. I was just there. I saw the prime minister. You can see Chinese construction all over the island. Uh, similarly, China has become has made inroads into the Maldives, which was earlier a country that was you know more or less in terms of its foreign policy outlook fixed firmly on India. You see a similar story in Nepal and acro- around India's periphery. So it's certainly true that China has become a much more influential and important player in South Asia than it was four years ago. Um, but that is simply, uh, that, is, that, that is for reasons that are out, out of India's control. That's a reflection of its economic might and it's a reflection of Xi Jinping's uh, more forward leaning policy, aggressive policies. Uh, I think the Modi government has, under those circumstances, uh, played its cards quite well. Uh, you saw, in, for example, in 2016 in Doklam, it refused to be cowed by the Chinese. This is a disputed territory in Bhutan, which was claimed by both Bhutan and China and has great strategic importance for India. And for, uh, for, uh, for, uh, for, uh, for several weeks, Indian and Chinese troops were eyeball to eyeball in the Himalayas, and India did not blink. So I think that, 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 was, uh, that, that showed uh, uh, great resolve. I think that the diplomatic strategy in terms of reaching out to the United States, uh, deepening relations with Japan, deepening relations with Australia this is the quad yeah. resurrecting so quad. The quad so I think the, they the, that that the government has uh, played its economic it's uh, played its okay. uh, diplomatic hand quite well question here. but it is on the back foot uh, and Sudan, on, on that, that note will the Indian
0: government give up its misgivings about having a security partnership with Australia given what Kevin Rudd did to India in 2008 on the quad and nuclear energy by the way you
1: know India doesn't do formal alliances I think the fact that you know uh, that India was skeptical about the Quad because the previous Australian Labor government was seen had had pulled out, and India sort of sees, Aust- rightly or wrongly, many Indians see Australia as the weak link in the Quad because of its very close economic relationship with China. China yeah. um, but the fact is the Quad is back, so let's see.
0: Okay, we are running out of time. Um, One last. I'll question, try and be sir. quick.
7: Um, some of the negative comments made about the. Modi's economic uh, initiatives truly disturbs me, given that we've missed the elephant in the room. We're in unprecedented economic times, due to quantitative easing, causing huge disjoint between the rich and poor worldwide. And at least India has made the first attempt at trying to do something about that disjoint, trying to use social economics, you know, with the world's biggest democracy. Can anyone comment?
1: What is social economics?
7: Well trying to create and break up that disjoint between the rich and poor, trying a better distribution structure, introducing taxation system that's more effective, you know, introducing policies that will create a better balance, which is what's needed in the world, because the biggest issue in the world right now is the disjoint between rich and poor caused by pure monetary printing and inflating assets at the expense of people trying to live a lifestyle.
1: So, I'll kick a quick stab at that. First of all, I don't see any evidence of such policies. Secondly, I think that the major thing that India faces is to completely eliminate poverty. It's made great strides in the last 25 years. And the key to that, which we've seen in the example of China and East Asia, is growth. So, at this stage of India's economic development, it needs to be focused on growth and it needs to be crea- focused on job creation. And the only re- way it's going to get to uh, faster growth and greater job creation is by getting rid of some of the hurdles that were placed over decades of socialism, and for that you need a strong and decisive leader. India has a strong and decisive leader. Unfortunately, he has not been strong and decisive in these departments.
0: Okay, now we are running out of time. Uh, I want to um, thank the panel, but before we do that, I want to introduce uh, a board member to do the vote of thanks. Center for Independent Studies has a very distinguished board of directors, mainly entrepreneurs and businessmen and women. Uh, no, no more so than our uh, next speaker, um, and uh, James Phillips, uh, our board member, will give the voter thanks. Welcome, James.
8: Uh, thanks, Tom. The um, I guess it's um, it's a um, sad fact of history that uh, the dominant uh, independence ideology on offer in the early to mid twentieth century. Uh, was uh, was leftist and that's led to the to some degree to the stultification of some of the um, economies in newly independent countries. Uh, the, um, it was very exciting to see India uh, moving away from that legacy since the early 1990s. I actually, um, I must have been extremely young at the time but my first trip to India was when I was... Um, Uh, It was in the 1980s and uh, since then I've only been back uh, once with my family about 15 years ago with my um, young sons and wife and um, the transformation even in that period between the mid 80s when everything felt completely uh, stultified and uh, more or less inert uh, and the energy that was around um, even 15 years ago was just remarkable. Uh, I've also had the opportunity to do some um, business with Indian companies, including in Australia. I have to make another, I don't want this to be a, um, a bashing of our cultural elite exercise, um, but um, <laughs> I do have to make the point that it uh, it's also seems to me a bit of a tragedy that when you make points in the context of the what we now call the Carmichael um, uh, mine because... Um, uh, um, polling has shown that Adani now has a negative connotation. The uh, uh, the um, the Carmichael mine, if you make um, the point that 25% of Indian households are still without electricity and that the biggest cause of death um, from pollution in the world today is actually indoor pollution from families living in extreme poverty who can't afford any electrification and who live in um, smoke... Um, uh, generated by the little fires they have to do their cooking and their only source of heat, no chimneys. If you make those sort of points to some of our um, cultural elite as a counterpoint to the issues around um, CO2 emissions, um, unfortunately, you don't get any traction whatsoever. And I think that's a bit of a tragedy. In any event, um, thank you so much to our speakers this evening. It was a very um, interesting panel, very uh, well-constructed, Tom, with the, um, some of the, um, um, uh, as I say, the um, um, more neutral, albeit coming from American Enterprise uh, Institute, <laughs> <laughs> sort of perspective uh, commentary to set up the discussion and then some uh, good partisan spice uh, in the discussion uh, subsequently.
5: Uh, so for me, uh,
8: fascinating discussion. and one which I think at the CIS we're thrilled to have facilitated this evening. And we do very much hope as well that some of you for whom this is your first uh, time at the CIS, that you'll um, show some interest in us. One of the uh, wonderful things about the Indian community in Australia is um, how enterprising it is and what a wonderful contribution it's making to the Australian economy as well as to other aspects of our lives. And I think you'd find that the CIS... uh, shares values with uh, many people in your community. So thank you all very much for your uh, participation in this event this
1: evening.